my Hebrew scholars in the room. Can anybody read what's up on the screen? Yeah, Hannah? Breshit bara Elohim. Good job, good job. And what is that from? That's from the beginning. That is from... Uh, yeah. So translated into English, Breshit in the Reshit. Reshit is, uh, comes from the word Rosh, which means the head or beginning of something, like Rosh Chodesh. So in the Reshit, in the time of the beginning, bara created. Elohim is the last word you see up there. In the beginning, God created. Elohim created. Those are the opening lines of the entire Bible, right? In the opening line of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So you may be thinking, wait, we didn't finish the book of James yet. Why are we going on to Genesis 1? I will be out of town next week. And uh, Adrian has the pleasure of finishing up James chapter 5 and concluding and buttoning up the book of James. So we're going to kind of overlap a little bit. We're starting a, a, a new book, and we're going to go through chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis, but we're kind of overlapping. I'm giving a little appetizer this week, and then he's going to finish up James 5, and then next, the week after that, I'll, I'll do Genesis chapter 2. And as we go through Genesis, we're going to take, we're, our goal is to do one or two chapters per week, so we're going to be in Genesis the better part of a year. Hope you guys are up for that. And um, we're going to answer some tough questions, raise some good questions. But um, you're going to see a variety of teachers up here speaking, and I've already coordinated with some of them. Like Genesis 3 is going to be Jeremy. Genesis chapter 6 uh, will be Mike Bordenberg. And you're going to see a variety of different teachers up here speaking through the, teaching through the book of Genesis because uh, it's good that they stretch their legs and be able to do that. But also they're going to find things and be able to teach things, and the Lord will lay things on their heart that... He doesn't need, and, and so it's good for them to come out and speak as well. But I want to go through, people were saying, you know, should we go back into the Torah portions and teach through the Torah? So what we're doing is we're going through, I don't like how the Torah portions, it feels like you're sprinting through the Torah when we go through the Torah portions. It's usually like, sometimes it can be upwards of six chapters per week that, that we study, and that's a little bit too much for my liking. Sometimes I like to kind of just sit and park and kind of just chew on a passage or a chapter for a very long time because there's so much depth there. And so that's what we're doing. I'm just kind of fulfilling that dream that we have just to go through slowly the Torah and, um, and teach through it. So I, I hope you guys are, are up for the challenge and, and I think you'll learn a lot as we, as we study through it. But Genesis chapter one, if you have a Bible, turn there with me. Cause, and if you have something to write with and a Bible or notes to take, I'm gonna give you guys a lot of stuff to ponder and think about today. As you're going there, let me, um, let me ask and kind of set the stage a little bit. Pretend, if you will, you know not of a creator and the origins of the world around you. Hmm. How do you explain this stuff, right? So all you have is this consciousness. And you can interact with stimuli around you. You feel like you're alive, right? And you see that there's other living beings, and that there is structure, there is order, there's a degree of design, it seems like, that's evident in this creation that we're a part of. But we don't know anything other than that. How do you attempt to explain that? And this is a question that has consumed the imagination, the consciousness of humans for thousands and thousands of years. How do we explain our existence? How do we do that? It's hard for us as Bible-believing, Yeshua-following people to step away out of our biblical worldview for a moment and to imagine that. But there's a growing number of people in the world that that is not their worldview. And they're being raised in a home where they are not taught that they are created, that they are a product of random evolutionary chances and biological processes. And I think... Sometimes we kind of have a hard time swallowing that pill, if you will. But I like these, there's like these five questions that I always tell people if you're interacting with someone that's outside of a biblical worldview and you want to maybe open up their mind to truth. Here are some good questions. The first is a question of origin. And you can ask them, you know, maybe you have a relationship with someone, a, col a colleague at work or something, or a friend or a family member. And you can say, where do you think we came from? And you get their answer, right? And it's like, where, where did I come from? It's five questions that every human has to grapple with at some point in their life, if they're an honest human being. 
Where did I come from? How do you answer that question? Where did I come from? You know, Stephen Hawking says that we're the product of some alien like space race and species that has like created us in a sense. <laughs> and he doesn't know the origins of them. He can't explain the origins of that. Then there's people who just say that we, we just came from nothing. You know, there's some atheists that say we just, which is spontaneous like eruption of, they, they actually, um, you know, the, the predominant Darwinian evolutionary view is that all matter in the universe was condensed down and tightly packed to the point that it could fit on the tip of an ink pen. Yes, I said ink pen. And that it got so highly charged and energized that it eventually exploded, and that was the Big Bang. And here we are, right, after billions and billions of years. But where did that matter come from, right? It doesn't answer that ultimate question. The idea of origin and the idea of atheistic like, explanation of that question is so new on the human timeline. It's so new. It's so, it's so illogical and new to say there is no God and there is no creator. That's a fairly new thing to do in the span of human history. All humans throughout all time have always said there is a creator and here's what we know about him or it or her or whatever. Only as of late do people say there is no creator. And it's just, I mean, it's other nonsense, of course, but they can't face that. Because here in Romans 1, Paul says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Any human being that says all of this is just random processes and it came from nothing is lying to themselves. I firmly believe there is no such thing as an honest atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist, but it's someone who is just fooling themselves and kidding themselves and trying to placate their conscious, their consciousness. Then there's another question, the question of meaning. Okay, so I'm here. Why am I here? Do I have meaning? Do I have purpose? You know, and some people say, no, you don't, because you're a product of random chance and evolutionary processes. The biblical worldview says, yes, you do have meaning and purpose, right? Then there's the question of morality. Okay, I'm here. Maybe there's a creator. I don't know what my purpose is, but there seems to be a code of conduct that we all need to abide by. And that code of conduct, let's call that, that be, those behavioral traits, let's call that morality. And who gets to define what is moral and what is not moral? What is right and what is wrong? What is that? And then who gets to define it? And I always say this, and you guys are probably tired of me hearing me say this, but in a, in a secular worldview, the answer to that question is he who has the biggest guns and the most money, they get to define it. In a biblical worldview, what is the answer to that question? The creator. The creator gets to define it. You remember I made a video a couple years back where I went around downtown Dothan and interviewed people and asked them that question? Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, you should try it tonight. <laughs> yeah, seriously. The question of destiny. Okay, I'm here. I'm trying to figure out what's right and wrong. I don't know if I have a purpose. I don't know. But where do I go when I die? Doesn't that plague a lot of people's minds and consciousness? What happens to me when I die? Is there, an, is there a metaphysical, eternal aspect of my existence? I feel like there is, but I don't know what it looks like on that other side. When my heart, heart stops beating, I don't know what happens. And we try to answer that question, right? So we can pull some information from the Bible and try to answer that question. A large part of the secular world says, in the atheistic material atheistic worldview says that there is no immaterial aspect of you, that any emotion you've ever felt in your life is a product of chemical reactions in your brain. And those are tangible, visible chemicals that are released in your brain. And there is no, there is no non-physical part of you. Therefore, when your heart stops beating, it's done. Lights out. There's no more of you. You got about 30 years and everyone that has ever known you will forget you unless you've done anything significant in your life. But think about what that would do to you. If you believe that for just five minutes, 
If you believe that there was no eternal aspect of your existence, and when you died and your heart stopped beating and there was no more of you, what would that do to your motivation to want to live and then your motivation to want to treat others like they have any kind of intrinsic value? Why would I care? Why would I care? Oh, that baby's going to be born into poverty. Who cares? It's just a blob of molecules and cells, and there's no eternal God-like image to that thing. To be honest with you, I'm surprised we don't terminate more human beings if we really believe that. The key is we don't. Thankfully, we don't really believe that. A lot of people that run our country don't really believe that. But think about what that would do to you. Now, here in the biblical worldview, think about this for a second. Well, let me back up and say in the secular worldview, in the secular worldview, you don't believe in a creator. You don't believe in God. Your value is based on your accomplishments, your talents, your net worth, your personality, your likability. That's your value. And so a guy who is eating out of the dumpster every day to survive he has less value than someone that has a high net worth. Right? You have, to, you have to rank human beings in that scenario. They might contribute something to society. He won't. Right? He has a disability. He has something wrong with his mind. Or he's developmentally, he's not there completely. He's less valuable to our society. Oh, man, that's a slippery slope, isn't it? And that's a slope many civilizations have gone down, and it's a very evil one, isn't it? The biblical worldview says the guy with billions of dollars, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, is valuable. The guy digging in the dumpster looking for his next meal is just as valuable. That's revolutionary, right? The unborn human in the womb is just as valuable. Even if they are born into abject poverty, they're just as valuable. Think about that. That's what the biblical worldview says. So that's a question of destiny. What happens to me when I die? Then there's the question of divine communication. If there is a God, which there has to be because I'm here, there has to be some kind of creative force that, that enacted itself on us. I'm here. Has that creator ever tried to communicate with its creation? And if so, if it has tried to communicate, what would that look like? Would it be like... Um, clouds spelling words up in the sky that would be pretty convincing until you see the airplane flying off <laughs> would it be like um someone coming to me and telling me that the creator spoke to them perhaps that's not very reliable would it be a creator speaking to millions of people at the same time and all of them hearing it at the same time that would be really convincing wouldn't it Huh. We're going to get into some of these questions, and we're going to answer some of these questions today. So Genesis 1.1. Breshit bara Elohim et et right? Let's get into it. Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the word here for God, your Bibles probably say God. In the original language, this book was written in Hebrew. In the original language, this word is Elohim. It is a title for, the, for, for God. It's not his personal name. It's a title for him. And it's also a word that's used for other gods in the ancient Near Eastern world. But Elohim is a very nonspecific title. But in this context, we understand that this is the Elohim that created the heavens and the earth. This word is going to be used to describe God about 2,600 times in the Hebrew Bible. 2,600 times it's going to be used to describe God which is far less than the 6,800 times that the yud Hey vav Hey, God's personal name, is used in the Hebrew Bible. Let's go and keep going. Verse 2 says that the earth was unformed and void. It was tohu vevohu. <laughs> tohu vevohu. Now, it's picture like, I want you in your mind to picture 
this dark churning water with waves and storms and lightnings and picture like in, in the middle of this ocean in a hurricane and it's dark. That's tohu vavohu. It was not functioning at all. It was not doing anything good. It was chaotic. It was over the face of the deep, the tohom. And the ruach Elohim, now pause here a second. We just have a little bit, a little glimmer of revelation of this God, don't we? There is Elohim, but then Elohim has a ruach. Interesting, right? Now, when you hear the word ruach, if you're an ancient Hebrew speaker, you also hear the wind or the breath of God. It says that the wind or the breath or the spirit of God, what it did in the Hebrew is it marachafetz. It's one of my favorite words, marachafetz. It's the idea, yeah, it's like a covering, but it's the idea of a mother bird flapping her wings as she's returning to her nest to excite her young, to wake up her young so that they open, open up their mouths and wait for something. That's marachafetz. It's stirring it to action, okay? Now, the ancient sages say that this spirit that hovered over the water was the spirit of Mashiach. It's interesting, right? I don't know if it's true or not. Could be the spirit. <laughs> but it's interesting, though, because remember the picture of the stormy, churning waters, right? The chaotic waters. And it hovered over the water. And who do we see hovering over the water in Galilee? Yeshua. And who do we see calling the waters to order? Yeshua. So maybe there's something to that. He called it to a state of, of tov, of good. Verse 3. Then God said, Vaya he or. Vaya he or. There was light. And God saw the light was good. Now let's pause and we have a question here. Is there a sun and a moon and stars yet? Are there any kind of celestial bodies illuminating the heavens? So how is there light? What is this light? Yeah, those aren't coming till day four. Go with me to Proverbs 6.23. Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment is a lamp. And the Torah is or lights and reproofs that discipline are the way to life. So the Torah is the light. I mean, that's what the Bible says. <laughs> I just quoted Proverbs 623. The Torah is light. So this light cannot be the light given off by the sun. This is a divine light. That is God's spoken word. It's the Torah, which gives credence to the idea that the Torah pre-existed even the creative process itself. That through the Torah, through the lights, he was able to create humanity. And it says, Vayahi or, there was light. And God saw that the light was tov, good. Now this word tov, as I've said before, means Functioning the way it's supposed to function. And God divided the light from the darkness. And Elohim called the light Yom, day. And he called the Choshek, the darkness, he called it Laila. And so there was Laila, and there was Boker, Yom Echad, day one. And this is why to this day on the Hebrew calendar, we start our days at sundown because it says there was evening and there was morning day one. It's really inconvenient to start Shabbat on Friday night, isn't it? It's like, why can't we follow the Gregorian calendar? Things start at midnight, right? But no, that's why we start at sundown. We have to observe the setting of the sun to know that the next day has arrived. Now go with me to John 1, 1, uh, John 1, 1 through 5. John 1, 1 through 5. Because the writer of this gospel is doing something really cool. He's mimicking this narrative just a bit. John 1, 1 through 5. 
In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. And he was with God, Bereshit, in the beginning. And all things came to be through him. And without him, nothing made had existence. In him was life. Wait, wasn't the Torah life? And wasn't the Torah the light? And wasn't the Torah the word? And isn't Yeshua the word? Yes. You see how it's all kind of connected there? It's kind of cool. And it says, and the life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not suppressed it. So Yeshua is the light. Yeshua is the word. Yeshua is the Torah. Yeshua is God. Yeshua is creator. Through him, all things came into being. Hmm. Now go with me to Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Trusting is being made confident of what we hope for. Confidence about the things we do not see. It was for this that scripture attested the merit of the people of old. Verse 3. By trusting, we understand that the universe was created through a spoken word of God. So that what is seen did not come into being out of existing phenomena. In other words, it was not a biological process but a spoken word of God. You know, C.S. Lewis says that um, when God created the world, he sung it into existence. It actually agrees with what some of the sages say, that God sang the universe into existence. And that's why some of, actually all of atoms are still vibrating in a sense that they give off vibrations and frequencies like linen. (laughs) Verse six. And God said, Let there be a dome in the middle of the water and let it divide the water from the water, the Mayim Bain Mayim. And God made the dome and divided the water under the dome from the water above the dome. And that's how it was. And God called the Rakia, he called it Shemayim. That's that space between the waters he called Shemayim. So there was evening and there was morning, day two. Verse nine. And God said, Elohim said, let the maim under the shamaim be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And that is how it was. And God called the dry land Eretz and gathering together of the maim, he called the yamim, the seas. And Elohim saw that it was tov. And Elohim said, let the Eretz put forth grass, seed producing plants, Fruit trees, each yielding its own kind of seed bearing fruit on the earth. And that's how it was. And the earth brought forth grass and plants, each yielding its own kind of seed and trees, each producing its own kind of seed bearing fruit. And God saw that it was Tov. So there was Lila, and then there was Boker, the third day. Verse 14. And God said, Elohim said, Let there be Orot. In the Rakia, let there be lights in the Rakia of the Shemaim to divide the day from the night and let them be for Otot signs and for Moedim seasons and let them be for Yomim and Shanaim days and for years. Now, this is interesting here because. There's no, as far as we know, these animals, which he, has, he actually has not created yet, animals. He has not created mankind yet. But what has he created? He's created something by which we can gauge time. Time is so interesting. And God creates time right here. Because time is always relative to our environment and things that we can observe. Now, time is interesting because uh, I love like, thinking about time. It's just so fascinating because if you were to go to like Jupiter, time would be different than it is here. But it's, it's amazing how God created this world because we are, we are 400. The, 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 let me put it this way. 
The moon is 400 times smaller than the sun. Our moon is 400 times smaller than the sun. But the moon is exactly 400 times closer to us than the sun is. Isn't that cool? So at times, they appear exactly the same size. And if that were just off by a little bit, our whole planet would be possibly in a state of chaos. But the evolution of time is really interesting. And it's fascinating that God decides to create time. In a way, he creates these celestial beings so that we can tell time. So that we can have Moedim. But the ancient peoples did not have a concept of like, time like we have it today. Think about if you were just an ancient barley farmer or an ancient shepherd. Did you have minutes? Did you think about minutes? Did you even think about hours? Maybe, but maybe not. What did you think about? You thought about sunrise? You thought about eating? You thought about sunset? And then you probably thought about like meals, or I'm sorry, about um, seasons, like rainy seasons and dry seasons or cold seasons. And uh, yeah, Jeremy thinks about meals. I do too, Jeremy. Harvest, Harvest seasons, yeah. But you, you never, never did the idea of hours or minutes or definitely not seconds did those ever cross your mind. You're sitting out there as a shepherd going like, I wonder if I can take this time and divide it into 18,640. No, no, you wouldn't do that, right? You're like, man, I'm hungry. I wonder when I'm going to eat next. I might go milk that goat and drink its milk, right? You wouldn't think about seconds. But the idea of seconds didn't come around. It's a fairly new concept. It didn't come around until the year uh, around 1000 AD by a Persian uh, um, mathematician and astrologer. His name was uh, Al-Biruni. And what he did is he took the Earth's rotation around the Earth's rotation around on its axis, and he knew that that was about 24 of these things we call uh, hours, and then he divided them into 86,400 seconds. <laughs> so in, in that 24-hour period, we have 86,400 seconds. But there's a problem. Anyone know what the problem is with that? It sounds, sounds good. Do you know that? Huh? It's not quite 24 hours. Yeah, why? Yeah, it changes. It's changing. Why? Because the Earth's rotation is slowing down ever so slightly. So like a couple thousand years ago, uh, the, the day would have been longer than it is now. Or do I have that reversed? I think I have that reversed. But, <laughs> but isn't it going faster? it's slowing down. The Earth's rotation is slowing down. So did you know there's a society, there's this organization that every few years, and they do it kind of like whimsically, like when they feel like it's time to do this, they add a second to our calendar. They call it a leap second. Kind of like we have a leap year. Know what the leap year is? They add a day to the month of February. There is this, and they add a second. And then they have to like put that out. And they, I forget what the name of society is, but they add a leap second. And it's every like, they kind of do it when they feel like it's necessary. And it gets, gets us caught back up or whatever. But um, there's different types of time. Uh, do you know there's like um, Unix time? Are you guys familiar with Unix time? Chuck probably is. Unix time is like what all computers are on. And that's like really exact, right? And then there's like, um, where's Chuck at? Yeah, everybody's laughing at Chuck. Huh? Huh? Unix, yeah, yeah, Unix time. Oh, yeah. No, yo, it's you... N-I-X. There you go. Unix time. Okay. But that's like, when, is, when, is, when did Unix time start? It goes back to like, it goes back to like the 1970s, doesn't it? Do you know? Okay. Maybe I'm, maybe, maybe Todd knows. <laughs> Todd. <laughs> Todd, do you know about Unix time? <laughs> but then, then there's, have you guys ever heard of atomic time? Yeah, that, that is really fascinating because that's what all of our watches are on. Now, back, back when the railroads um, were, were, were unbuilt in the United States of America, did you know that like, um, the West Coast and the East Coast of the U.S. were like as much as 10 to 15 minutes off from one another? Because there's no way to communicate. Hey, what time is it over there in San Francisco? Oh, it's 9.35. Oh, okay, good, I got it. There's no way to do that. 
But when telegraph lines and, and then the railroads got developed, then we started calibrating our time across the nation. And now we have the internet. But then we've even, we've even refined it even more where we have atomic time. So now we can take a second and we can divide it into smaller parts. We call it time, atomic time because it's the time that a, a um, cesium atom, uh, cesium atom, I think I'm pronouncing that right, it's when it changes its atomic number. It's the amount of time it takes for it to change its atomic number. It's amazing, right? And we can, we, we can calculate even smaller fractions of seconds, which is amazing that we can do that because that helps us with scientific breakthroughs and stuff and, and discoveries. But, um, but when we go back to the original reckoning of time, it's like, here's the moon, here's the sun, here's the stars. That's time. That's, I don't know. I don't want to geek out over that stuff. But then it says in um, verse 15, and let them be for lights in the Rakia Hashemayim to give or light to the Eretz, the earth. And that's how it was. And God made two great lights. The larger light to rule the day and the smaller light to rule the night and the stars. And God put them in the Rakia Hashemayim to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and to rule over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was Tov. So there was Lila and there was Boker, a fourth day. And God said, let the Mayim swarm with uh, swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in al panei rakia hashemayim, in the in the face in, in the in the in the face of the rakia hashemayim, in the dome of the sky, and God created the great sea creatures, and there was every kind of weak bird. And Elohim saw that it was tov, and Elohim blessed them, saying, "Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the water of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the eretz." So there was Lila, and there was Boker, a fifth day. All right, things are going to get interesting here. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth each kind of living creature, each kind of livestock, crawling animals and wild beasts. And that's how it was. And God made each kind of wild beast, each kind of livestock and every kind of animal that crawls along the ground. And God saw that it was tov. Yeah, working the way that's supposed to work, right? Verse 26, then Elohim said, Naase Adam Betsalmenu Kide Mutenu. Now, if you're not a Hebrew speaker, you're lo- that, that is completely lost on you. What he's saying there is all plural language. All plural language. Naase, let us make Adam, Adam. Betsalmenu in our image. Ki demutenu and in our likeness. Some people say that that betsalmenu in our likeness is applies to physical shape and appearance. Where the dama, the ki demutenu in our in our likeness or like in our uh, it's hard to translate. But that maybe is a moral and metaphysical components of our existence. But what's interesting there is that it's all plural. So Elohim, is he alone? Nope. Apparently not. And apparently whoever is with him has a similar image to him. Got me? In a simil- similar shape and moral or uh, like metaphysical components. It's interesting. So who is that? <laughs> or if you're reading this for the first time, that should be puzzling to you. And that should make you scratch your head and think, what? you know, we take for granted that, you know, we know, okay, Yeshua was there. He's the author of creation. You know, but we know all that stuff. But the world may not. Verse 26, which I already read. He says, in the likeness of ourselves, and let them rada, rule, rada, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals, and all over the earth, and over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. And here's like the first poem we ever find in the entire Bible. Verse 27. So Elohim created Adam in his Betzal, his image. 
Now this word um, betzal is like later used to describe idols that are in the shape of like a, like a god. It's the, it's the idea of shape. So what I'd like to tell people is when you look at someone, another human being, that is the closest this side of the kingdom you will ever come to seeing God when you look at another human being. It's interesting, right? So God created Adam in his, his own image. In the Betsalmo, in, in his image, which is masculine singular now, of Elohim, he created him. Zachar, Ve Nagav, he created them. Now let's pause there for a second. Zakhar, it means remember. It comes from the same root as to remember, like the name Zachariah, remembered by God, Zachariah. Or sometimes we have Yom Zachor, which is the day of remembrance, the Holocaust Remembrance Day. So our very, when he ascribes us some kind of, I guess we could say gender, he calls it, he uses and employs a word that is connected to the idea of remembering. And then he uses this other word, nagav, for the other gender, which is actually a verb. It means to pierce. He created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, he says, paru, be fruitful. And Rabbah, become great. Now this word paru, it's where we get the word fruit. When we say the blessing over the fruit of the vine, we say baruch atah Adonai lehinu melechalam, borei peri. It's just a different conjugation of that word paru, means be fruitful. Now you can go on a tangent here if you want to, when you go home, and do a really fun little exploration on the country Peru. There is speculation that that has, its name has its roots in Hebrew language, Peru, the land of like fruitfulness is what you would translate that to. He says, Peru, be, uh, be fruitful, and Rabbah, become great, and Mala, fill the earth. Now let's pause here, and I was studying this morning, preparing to teach on this. There is a phenomenon going right, right now where there is an increase in infertility rates in human beings, and no one knows why. Uh, there was a lot of speculation in the article I was reading, um, talking about maybe like hormone blocking chemicals that we're just constantly subjected to. And, um, and that is causing humans to become ever increasingly more infertile um, and unable to bear children. And there's probably there's people in this room that, that struggle with that. People in my family that struggle with that. And just know that it's not a product of like you, you, you sinning on your part or anything like that. It's not, God doesn't want you to have children. It's a product of the fact that we live in a fallen world and we live in a sinful world. And there's people that, um, that, that would prefer to do things that are harmful to you to make a buck uh, and exploit you to make a buck that might hurt your chances of bearing children or whatever. There's a myriad of different cases and, and reasons why that is rising. No one knows with certainty, but, um, you know, the most fertile people group in at least North America right now and not the world, you know what that is? And in 215 years, they will surpass and become the majority population in the United States of America if they continue on this trajectory. You know who that is? The Amish. In 215 years, they double in population every 20 years. In 215 years, the Amish will surpass and become the majority population in the United States of America. It's interesting, right? So what are they doing or not doing? That is, I don't know. But it says, be Peru, be Rabbah, and Mala, fill the earth. And put the kibosh on it. <laughs> I'm not making that up. It says it in the Hebrew, put the kibosh on it. It says, kibosh it. Now, how many of you have heard that? Hey, put the kabash on it. You heard that before? A little phrase? That's a Hebrew word, kabash. It means to like, it means to subdue something, to bring it under subjection. Now, I firmly believe, you know, you hear a lot of stuff about, oh, the world's overpopulated. Um, 
you know, and they always on the news, they talk about overpopulation. They show like, they show like downtown Manhattan at 5 p.m., right? And everyone's walking. Like they pick that particular clip to show. And everyone's shoulder to shoulder walking on these sidewalks and there's taxis lined up and everything. It's like gridlocked. And people say, oh, it's overpopulation. But that flies in the face of what God, God says would be fruitful and multiply. And we don't have a problem with overpopulation in the United States of America. We have, we have an overpopulation of people who are dependent on living too close together. <laughs> we have a problem with that. We have people who, who don't know how to live outside of the, the confines of like interdependence with one another and, like, and, and exploitation within cities and stuff like that. And anytime you see a, someone going to a city in the Bible, bad things are about to happen. So we have, we have crowding problems, but we don't have an overpopulation problem. So um, I believe we have an underpopulation problem, to be honest with you. Um, I was on an airplane with a guy on my way to East Africa, and uh, he, I mentioned that. I said, I said, I think we have an underpopulation problem. And he goes, I think Africa has an overpopulation problem. And I was like, well, you need to go to the places that I've been to. You'll see that there are endless natural resources and not a human being in sight. And there's just... When you go to the capital city of one particular country, and it's like 13 million people packed within 10 square miles. And they're all like codependent on one another and codependent on their government, providing handouts and all this other stuff. And you're like, if they were given the opportunity to spread out and, and populate more those areas and to harness those natural resources and use them in a responsible way, the world would be a much better place. But the systems of this world uh, don't want that to happen, right? They want you to be dependent on them because you're either a slave to God or you're a slave to someone else. You're either a slave to God or you're a slave to someone else. Just something to think about. He says, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that crawls on the earth. And Elohim said, here, throughout the whole earth, I'm giving you food. Every seed-bearing plant and every tree and seed-bearing fruit. And to every wild animal, bird in the air, and creature crawling on the earth in which there is a living soul, I'm giving as food every kind of green plant. And that is how it was. Now let me pause here and say, are there plants out there that will kill us if we eat? Absolutely. So if we take the logic of some people and say, well, every animal, because he gave us every plant to eat, therefore every animal is edible. Well, if you eat shark meat, you will die, right? We know that that logic can't carry through. So we, we, I believe that he's speaking with a degree of hyperbole here. Like in other words, I want you to be provided for. Eat food. But just know that there are some things that will kill you, right? And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Now this is the first time he's going to change the language. He goes from tov to what? Tov me'od. And there was Lila, there was Boker, the sixth day. Chapter two, thus the Shemaim and the Eretz were finished along with everything in them. And on the seventh day, God was finished with his work, with his Malakot, which he had made. So he rested on the seventh day, Yom Shabbat, from all his Malakot, which he had made. And then God gave the seventh day a bracha. He blessed it. And he separated it, when in Hebrew it, it's make it kadosh. Because on it, Elohim Shabbat, from all of his malakah, which he had created. So that it itself could produce. So he like wound it all up. It's like self-sufficient. And he's like, the seventh day, I'm going to rest. But what else do we not see? We don't see, then there was evening, and there was morning. The seventh day. We don't see that at the end of here. That tells me there's a little hint. No marker of time, right? At the end of the seventh day. Go with me to Revelation 21, 23. Revelation 21, 23. Revelation 21, 23. I saw, I'm in verse 22, Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city, for Adonai, the God of heaven's armies, is its temple, as is the Lamb. 
The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory, Shekhinah, it gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. You see that? The nations will walk by the light, the light and the kings of the earth will bring forth their splendor into it and its gates will never close. They will stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and the splendor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So the Shabbat here, we get a first little foretaste that the Shabbat stands for something bigger, doesn't it? It stands for an eternal kingdom that has no need of time, no marker. Now everything's hunky-dory here, isn't it? Everything's good to go. (laughs) With one exception. He gave this Adam, he gave Adam, the humanity, the ability to choose. And we, ladies and gentlemen, were created to choose. That is our purpose in life, is to choose. And every day you probably make about 10,000 little decisions, some you don't even think about, most you don't think about, but you make decisions. Some are big decisions, some are, should I go with the vanilla or the chocolate, right? But you were created to choose. But how awful and beautiful that he gave us this ability to choose. Isn't it? Let me follow up with some questions here. What do we know about this Elohim so far? You guys just spit it out to me. What do you know? He created everything we see. He's not just one singular Godhead. Mm. There seems to be some plural language there, doesn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Elohim, the word Elohim, is a plural word. It could be because in Hebrew, sometimes you make words plural to add emphasis, or it could be that there is a plurality in the essence of who God is. Uh, yeah. Does, David. does uh, the Hebrew use Elohim plural or the verb singular? Say it again. Are the verbs used with Elohim here singular? No. At least in verse 26, they are plural. Naase betzalmenu. Yeah, that's very plural. Yeah. It comes from the verb asa, which is a singular verb to, to make. Yeah. Good question, though. Anybody else? Yeah. I was just going to say that another thing about Elohim is that um, everything he created, he did by speaking. Mm-hmm. And also everything was good. Everything was good. Yeah, there's a lot of talking going on, right? Out of his. Out of, out of, yeah, he's sing, or singing according to some. Yeah, it's through his speaking that things are created. Anybody else? What do we know about him so far? We know that there's some masculine language going on, that we could ascribe masculinity to this creator, right? Safe to do. (laughs) All the feminists in the room, no, he didn't. (laughs) I'm sorry you're angry. All right? Considering all the injustice that would transpire throughout human history, can we say that the act of creation was a just and merciful one? Should he have done it? Mm. Would you have done it? If you knew, if you could see through the corridors of time, would you pull the trigger on creating all of this? And that's my next question. Could he see that all of this would transpire? So millions and millions of people dying horrible and unjust deaths. Wars upon wars, famine upon famine. Murder, rape, abuse. Injustice abounds, does it not? So is he just for creating all this? Is he good for winding all of that up? Why didn't he just keep it to himself, right? Carol. He gave us that life. He gave us that freedom. Because he wanted us to make 
Absolutely. How many of you who have created children in the room would love if your children came out as robots? <laughs> but at the same time, you know that that love is an artificial one that is shown back to you, right? That it's like an AI system that you just program to tell you, oh, I, you, know, you love me or whatever. But you knew that that child that you were going to create and produce and give birth to had free will. And you knew, at least I hope you did, that that child at some point in your life was going to cause you heartache, was going to cause you a lot of pain, was going to betray you, was going to do a lot of damage with their choices and their free will, right? But you determined that the risk of creating that child outweighed all that, didn't it? Because, not, not necessarily because you want them to turn around and say thank you for all this. But because you just love seeing them provided for and cared for and loved by you. Now a lot of people say this thing, and this is I, so bogus, I don't say this. That God created us all to worship him. Yeah, he wants us to worship him. But I think that paints a picture of Elohim, of God, that is a, more of a narcissistic one than it needs to be. He wants our worship and our adoration. But I tend to think that God created all of this so that we would experience his love, a pure love. And in doing so, worship him. Just like every father in the room and every mother in the room wants nothing more than our children to feel love and secure. And it's just the icing on top when they turn around and say, I love you. Thank you for doing everything you did for me. If the creator knew all this would transpire and the world would become corrupt, yet he still went forward with it, does that make him a just creator? And that's the biggest problem I have with uh, five-point Calvinism, is that if you accept five-point Calvinism, you're accepting that God created evil. And evil is not a product of humans' choices. I, I reject that. But is he a just creator? How do we know? What is justice? What is morality, right? What is, what is good and evil without a creator? If there is no absolute objective source of morality, remember it goes back to that question, the moral question, what is right and wrong and who gets to define it? Do we even have the grounds to look at God and say, you're unjust? If he created everything, if he created our sense of reason and rationale, can we even for a moment think that he is unjust? We can't, because he is the author of all of that. He is the be-all, end-all of justice and morality. And So let me ask this question. <laughs> Some say, I believe God is unjust for creating all this. I'm mad at him because I love justice and goodness. Therefore, there is no God. Is that an option? Can we go with that option? No, that's, that's lying to yourself. And there's a lot of people I've encountered that, have, that do that. They say, well, how, how could I believe in a God that this and that and that? Well, let's just say for a second that God did all that. Let's just say for a second he is a really bad creator. Does that make him not creator? No, we're just stuck with a bad creator. We're just stuck with a bad God. But that's not an option. That's, an, that's a logical fallacy. Right? But most people you encounter have that worldview right there that are disbelieving in God. So, Leslie. And I think, not that we, and yet, there is a lot of evil in this world, but there's also a lot of good. Yeah. Sometimes the evil outweighs the all- I'll be good. But I know it's just like when we have kids, most of us know that they're not always going to be great. <laughs> but sometimes that little, that little good they do is just yeah. so much pleasure for you yeah. to see. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I agree with that. Okay, so we're left with a couple options. And here they are. Option A. And, and guys, let me, let me, hey, stop looking at this for a second. Look at me. I'm doing this kind of fun little exercise with you and getting kind of teasing your brains. But don't think for a second that there are not people sitting in this room that don't grapple with these questions. There are people in this room that I guarantee you, if they're not right now, they will in the future grapple with these questions. So don't think this is all just like fun and games. This is me sharpening you and preparing you for the times that those questions arise in your mind, if they're not already there on the front of your brain. And that's okay that you have those questions. Option A, here it is. And I'm being for real here. Option A is this. There's a creator. The creator is not good, and he's not just. That's it. And we're stuck with him. That's option A. Now, but this implies, however, that, that the created being, us, we at least know what justice looks like. It's a big implication, isn't it? And that justice is within us. So, okay, guys, guys, listen, God who created us, he's evil, he's, he's mad, he's not just, he's not good, but we can be good. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're a hot mess, aren't we? A steaming pile of hot mess. Here's option B, though. Maybe we can go with option B. There is a creator. The creator is good and just, and I am to learn goodness and justice from the creator. But there's a next step. If we go with option B, if you're in this room and you're like, yeah, I'm right there, option B, your job is to seek out deeper revelation of this creator and his, her, its precepts. Where do you start? Now, there's people that go, well, I'm going to go to the oldest possible document I can find because surely that's right. Age does not mean truth. Well, let me ask you guys something. I've got about five more minutes and we're going to wrap up. What to you would prove that a document or an oracle or whatever came from someone who is the creator or closely affiliated with the creator. What would prove that to you? Written in stone. Written in stone? I can take a chisel and write all kinds of things in stone. What would prove that to you? What needs to be evident if I'm to believe that is an oracle of the creator? There it is. If there are multiple times in these oracles, let's call them oracles, where a prophecy has been made, a prediction has been made, and let's say there's dozens of these, hundreds of these, and they eventually come true, that tells me there is a very high chance that the person or the being that collected those oracles and has those oracles, the author of those oracles is outside of space and time. And who is outside of space and time? Who, as we just discussed, created time? In my mind, and that's just me, to believe an oracle is the oracle of God, I want to see time-tested, fulfilled, and many examples of fulfilled prophecy. Now, I would love it right now if like a ball of fire came out from the ceiling and hovered in this room and it spoke to us all and we all heard it. But even then, can we believe it? I don't know. Because it says in the last days, many will be led astray by false signs and miracles, right? Be careful, guys. Be careful. Here's option C. Nope, there is no option C. I must have accidentally deleted it. Option A, option B. So as we journey through, option C is just like, oh, I'm just waiting for the football game to come on. I don't, know. I don't really care. I don't know why we're talking about Genesis today. No. Option, option C is this. My objectives in teaching through the book of Genesis are as follows. 
Number one, to make a case for the Bible being that revelation you should seek after, the oracles of God. Number two, to prove that the God of the Bible is good and just. And number three, to illuminate to you why we have been created and how that should shape your understanding of your purpose and identity. And number four, to combat the notion that humans are purposeless or just products of random chance and biological processes. I want to convince you in the next 47, 50-something chapters, as we're in the book of Genesis, that you're created in the image of God. The God who created you is good and just, and you have purpose and intentionality woven into your very existence. And that this word that I'm reading from today is the oracles of that creator. You think I can do that? I'm going to try. (laughs) Stick around. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to do the blessing of the fruit of the vine. Abba Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you desire to be called Father. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room right now that struggles with who you are, struggles with your nature, your essence, struggles with purpose and identity, that they would this week come to terms with that and that you would confront them and they would encounter you in a new way and have a deeper revelation of you. And Father, I pray that if there is a person within the sound of my voice that is experiencing that doubt, experiencing that misunderstanding and confusion, that they would do things that are outside the norm to encounter you. That they would do things like fast food and pray. That they would do things like study your word in a whole other level. And they would cry out to you to prove yourself, to show yourself. Father, I pray that you would just envelop them with your love, with your peace and your goodness. And be with all of us as we go our separate ways. May we encounter your love and the love of Yeshua this week and be able to emanate that out to those around us and share that with those around us and bring others into your kingdom and the saving knowledge of our Messiah. It's in his name I pray. Amen.